Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you were Martin Luther in today's world, what would you write for the 95 Theses, identifying the drift areas of the church away from what Jesus had in mind? Subtle but powerful roadblocks for the effectiveness of the church? What would you write for 95 Theses? Hi, I'm Ken Hunter, founder of Church Doctor Ministries, a consultation, resource, teaching ministry. And I'm happy to be with you today and share with you in this second episode of our series about the Protestant Reformation at its 500th birthday, Time to Clean House. Here's the basic scenario. The way we look at churches, and we've consulted a lot of them, many different denominations, what happens is there becomes a very subtle tendency to drift from some very basic biblical issues. Not so much core theology. Sometimes it is. And in some denominations, that's really a big issue. But for most Christian churches, it's not a theological drift. It's not like, yeah, we don't care what the Bible says, we think. Not one of those deals. It's more like a situation where very subconsciously, very subtly, these different programs come into the church, and they aren't necessarily obviously evil. They're just not really that helpful for the primary focus and direction of the church. Now, I've got to tell you my bias. My bias is the bias Jesus had. He demonstrated it by what he did. He discipled 12 guys and a few other people, including some women. And he turned them loose. And all through the New Testament, you can read about this. They introduced the Savior, Jesus, to other people and discipled them so that they could disciple others. And the project became a movement, and the movement just became exponential and exploded in the good sense across the Mediterranean world. In the short time of the early history of the early church that's in the Bible, this church took over a good part of the Mediterranean world. Well, the church today has clutter that isn't so bad that it's noticed, but is bad enough to get in the way. So I don't want to be unkind about this, because I know many pastors and many church leaders and many Christian people who worship regularly who are very, very committed, but are in a quandary as to why their churches continue to decline and age. And in our first episode, we talked a little bit about Phyllis Tickle's book, The Great Emergence, and how every 500 years, there seems to be a major hinge point of history that for the church, some radical transformation takes place. It doesn't really become anything new. It just becomes what it's supposed to be or has supposed to have been all along. And that's not as easy as it sounds when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of living every day in a church, but it is possible. And so Martin Luther saw this back at the time of the Reformation, and we're at 500th anniversary now. So if 
Phyllis Tickle in her book, uh, The Great Emergence is Right, we're right there, right now. People that lived 100 years ago weren't part of this change moment in history. You are. I am. We are together. So I want to ask you a serious question. What is God saying to you? And I have another serious question. Not only what is God saying to you, but what are you going to do about it? Well, in my relentless efforts to do something about it, I wrote the book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival. And I'm happy. It's taken off like wildfire. I don't really care about being a celebrated author. I just care about people in churches understanding and having hope and recognizing ways that they can become a healthier church and offload some of these roadblocks. They're not bad people. They just have inherited some stuff that isn't that good. So beyond the book, which had been out a couple of months by the time the historical moment of the Reformation came about at the end of October 2017, I decided I'd write 95 theses. What would it look like today? And I don't have any visions of grandeur about being Martin Luther. Forget that. I don't see myself as a reformer. I'm a church consultant. And I love what I do, and I don't have any aspirations to do anything else. But I thought, yeah, okay. I don't know anybody else has done this. I'm going to take a shot at it. We've researched churches for the last 35, 40 years. And this has been my singular focus for most of my adult life. So why not take a shot at it? So I started writing 95 Theses. In this episode, episode two, I'm going to talk about the first 13. And as the episodes continue, we'll get through the 95. The first one, and it's first maybe because it should be, and it needs to be said. So number one of the 95 Theses of A Time of Renewal, the New Reformation, whatever you want to call it, Number one is this. The God of the Bible is the God of today. Yeah, well, no joke, somebody might say. But the truth is, it's not a joke. The truth is, in many subtle ways, there are times when we Christians read stuff in the Bible and mentally get trapped in some subconscious gymnastics of relegating to, well, that happened then, but that doesn't, even worse, that couldn't happen now. I see no evidence of that in the Scripture. I know there are people called dispensationalists, and you might be one. I love you anyway. I think that some of these things that are hard for sophisticated people of today to swallow— no longer exists because at the end of the formation of the New Testament, God didn't need those anymore, so he just took them all away. But I'll tell you what, from Scripture alone, which is one of Martin Luther's big deals, that you don't rely on anything but Scripture, that's pretty tough to prove, that dispensationalism. And I heard some of it while I was studying in different seminaries, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know why it was. I just thought, well, professors know everything, so I should just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. But and the more I study Scripture and the more I study churches and the more exposure I've had in real revivals, 
in Africa, in Asia, in South America, even at one time during the fall of communism in Soviet Russia. I've been in the midst of these revivals training pastors. It's just profound. You can't explain how people are coming to Christ. You just can't fathom where are all these people coming from. I remember preaching at a church in Lagos, Nigeria. I was outside of Lagos in a smaller town. And the leader that had invited me to do this big conference of about 5,000 pastors asked me to preach on Sunday at a new church plant, a new church start in a little area outside of Lagos, Nigeria. Well, I said, yeah, okay, I'd be glad to do that. I'd love to preach on Sunday. I don't care what size the crowd is. And uh, this church is only a couple years old. And uh, we get there and we come to this warehouse they were renting, no windows, and no bathrooms either. No breeze, no air conditioning for sure. Hotter than blazes in there. There were 2,000 people sitting on benches for a three-hour worship service, benches that had no backs on them. And the church was growing by leaps and bounds. And no one could explain from a human perspective how that is happening. The signs and the wonders that are taking place, people being healed. You know, I'm sorry, no matter what your background or thinking is, I just want to urge you to pray about and look at the scripture, this concept that the God of the Bible is still the God of today. This God does not change. And that is my first one of my 95 theses. Number two continues that thought and bridges what I've been saying. Anything God did in the Bible can and does occur today. Now, I have to admit, this second thesis, anything God did in the Bible, can and does occur today. I didn't get this one from my own knowledge or experience. I borrowed this one. This one came from another revival. Oh, not in Africa or some exotic place where things are quite different than the culture that I'm used to in America. No, this came from the revival in England, where we take a group every year. No more than 20, but we take a group of Americans and Canadians every year to England to meet with the leaders that are scattered across the British Isles to learn firsthand and to experience a revival that's taking place in a culture much like North America. That's where I got it. Anything God did in the Bible can and does occur today. And you know what? I've seen it in England as well. It happens all the time. So it doesn't have to be some culture that's extremely different. It can be right here. It can be right now. And so I just can't deny this. So my first of my 95 theses, the God of the Bible is the God of today. Anything God did in the Bible can and does occur today. And if you haven't seen it occur, it's probably because you have mentally roadblocked the possibility. And I'm sorry to be blunt about that, but it's a fact. And I'm not some raging Pentecostal. Sorry about my Pentecostal friends. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> no, I love those people. Quite frankly, some of those people have rubbed off on me. No, I have a Lutheran background. I'll admit it. <laughs> But I've been in so many churches, I've come to realize a full, wonderful community of God across denominational lines. But yeah, this didn't come natural for me. So if it doesn't come natural for you, 
I just say, don't come to a quick judgment. Give God a chance. Read what the New Testament says. Note what it doesn't say. And look closely at what you might be open to today. And that opening, you may actually experience then, because you're open, things that occur that occurred in Scripture. I have personally. So all glory to God. My thesis number three, the scripture is the only operational manual God has given to his people. I'll say it again. The scripture is the only operational manual God has given to his people. Now, let me be clear about that. When I say operational manual, perhaps you've never heard of the Bible described that way the Holy Bible, but it is an operational manual. Now, you have to be sensible about this and really understand how to do theology to understand that it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to wear a tunic and sandals everywhere you go because that's what they did in the New Testament. But when it comes to theological or missiological issues that were both commanded and demonstrated in the New Testament. The New Testament, particularly, and the whole Bible altogether becomes an operational manual that God has given to his people. Sometimes we read parts of the scripture, like the parables in the four gospels, and we say, well, those are nice stories. And yeah, they have a couple of meanings for our life today, but that was another time, that was another culture, and that was many centuries ago. But in truth, those parables, those stories that Jesus told, are parables, are teachings about kingdom culture, the values, the beliefs, the attitudes, the priorities, the worldviews that we should have, the DNA that marks us as kingdom people. And that's not just marking us for what we believe and what we preach, but how we operate and how we operate today in the church. Thesis number four. It is related to number three. Number four, biblical illiteracy is rampant among many Christians, especially when it comes to the purpose, function, and mission of the local church. Let me say that again, because I know that some who are listening to me care enough about their church to take notes. God bless you. Biblical illiteracy, here it is, number four. Biblical illiteracy is rampant among many Christians, especially when it comes to the purpose, function, and mission of the local church. So many churches that we've consulted as church doctors, and we take all this data, like how many people are in worship, that's pretty obvious. And also, then we ask how many people are in a regular Bible study, either at church or in a home, on a regular basis. We don't even say weekly, we just say regular basis. And we discover that the majority of people in every church are not involved in Bible study. These are people that want the quick fix commercial on Sunday morning, the 20 minute sermon or whatever. And you know, that preaching is very important, 
But I'll tell you this, that preaching works best for people who are students of the scripture because they get way more out of it. So don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying don't preach or preaching is not important. You preachers give it all you can because it is vitally important, but the value of it goes up 10 times among those people that are in the word of God, particularly in a small group where there's discussion and processing at least once a week. And so that part of it is really important. But, you know, it's incredible. You start asking questions about the Bible and biblical teaching to many people in churches, and it's just unbelievable how knowledgeable they aren't. I mean, it should be an embarrassment. I'm embarrassed sometimes by people who, without even realizing they're embarrassing themselves, tell me how little they know about anything about the Bible. People that have been around the church for 40 years, they've learned one year of Christianity 40 times over and over again. That's about it. Shallow. I don't mean to be mean about it or judgmental to these people. Thank God they're in church, at least listening to the sermon. But we've got to get beyond that. You just can't do it because you can't disciple a crowd. That happens more in a processing environment like a small group or a Bible class where people are talking with each other and sharing things and learning from one another. Number five really is a hinge point in the 95 Theses, and I'll share it with you now. Jesus shaped his followers by teaching the culture of the kingdom of God. Now, before you say, well, everybody knows that, I wish everybody did know that. Everybody, that sounds familiar to everybody, but not everybody knows it. But everybody does know, or probably a lot of Christians that have been Christians for a while, are clearly aware that Jesus started most of his stories, parables, by saying the kingdom of God is like, or for Matthew, who was writing his gospel to Jewish people who felt it was offensive to use the name God, he changed it to say the kingdom of heaven is like, same parable, same stories, but he was sensitive to his audience, which is one of the things you learn about kingdom culture. The kingdom culture develops a culture, and Jesus said about kingdom culture, my kingdom is not like this world, not of this world, and that's what it means. It's not anything like this world, and so if your church looks like the world and does all the stuff the world does, and a lot of churches do, maybe you ought to rethink some of that stuff. Because what you're accomplishing is you're wearing out people, and they don't have any energy left to be disciples who make disciples and grow your church. And that's part of the challenge. So this leads to number six. Drift from kingdom culture greatly diminishes the mission effectiveness of Christians and churches. Not the fellowship effectiveness, but the mission effectiveness. So it's this subtle subconscious drift that takes place and compounds year after year and just takes us away, not from fellowship, not from a lot of things, but from the thing that makes the difference for the future and for our neighbors who are not Christians and for our communities who need Jesus and our country who desperately needs the gospel. It diminishes the effectiveness of the mission. Number seven, the primary mission of the Christian church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, you would think that everybody gets this. If you look at church constitutions, and I've looked at over a thousand of them, and even the constitutions of denominations, when you get to the purpose clause in the constitution, 
It says our purpose is Matthew 28, 19, 20, the Great Commission, go make disciples. If you look at the activities of most churches, and if you understand what it means to make a disciple, it ain't happening, folks. It just is not happening. And so we need to very basically get back to thesis number seven. The primary mission of the Christian church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But it's more than that. And that brings us to number eight. Number eight is Jesus intends his disciples to become disciplers. Now, this is a huge gap in about every church I have analyzed. Huge gap. You've got people that claim that they're disciples of Jesus, show up at church all the time, carry a Bible, may even read the Bible or whatever, but they have never been trained to disciple other people. In fact, they think that the real people that make disciples are the staff or the pastor or both. So Jesus intends his disciples to become disciplers. Number nine, most churches make church members Few Christians make disciples. Think about that. Most churches make church members. Few Christians make disciples. Number 10. Most pastors do not disciple Christians, but rely mostly on teaching and preaching, and that is primarily to groups. Most pastors do not disciple Christians, but rely mostly on teaching and preaching. You cannot disciple a group. Jesus could disciple 12. If you think you're better, you might take on more than 12. But for most of us in all humility, if you could do one or two at a time, plus your regular life, that would be awesome. But most pastors don't do it, probably because most pastors have not been discipled by someone themselves. And so the wheel turns, one generation of Christians after another. It just continues, and you've got to stop it. Number 11, no one, not even Jesus, can disciple a crowd. I've mentioned this before, but I want to expand it here. Number 11, no one, not even Jesus, can disciple a crowd. Number 11 continues Discipling is an up-close and personal process. Discipling is an up-close and personal process. It just is. You can't change that. Number 11 continues. One-on-one discipling is the platform for spiritual renewal. And then the last part of number 11 is Jesus modeled this. He did. He modeled it. So if we follow Jesus, and that doesn't just mean we believe in him and go to church, but if we follow him in every dimension of what that means, we follow the way he discipled the disciples. He modeled that. Just a couple more. Number 12, discipling disciples leads to growth by geometric progression. Geometric progression is a mathematical term. It's not in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is, because it's exactly what happened. The words aren't there, geometric progression. You won't find that in your concordance. But if you read the scripture, you'll see that it happened all over the Mediterranean world. 
Number 12 is discipling disciples leads to growth by geometric progression. That's like 10 to the 10th power. And that is way beyond simple multiplication and light years beyond addition and millennia beyond a declining church. And our last one for this episode, number 13, geometric progression is the pattern for recapturing the movement dimension of Christianity. I'll say it again. Geometric progression is the pattern for recapturing the movement dimension of Christianity. Christianity is not just a denomination. It is not just a local church. It is not growth by addition. It is not just growth of a church by multiplication or even geometric progression. It is the growth of a movement. There is a movement dimension beyond the local church to other churches, to other people, reaching other people beyond, always expanding and growing. Number 13, geometric progression is the pattern for recapturing the movement dimension of Christianity. Well, you chew on these first 13, and if you haven't already decided I have no idea what I'm talking about, then you come back in episode three, and we'll begin with some more of these 95 theses, starting with thesis number 14. This is heavy stuff. I hope it hits the target that helps you and your church. God bless you. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.